have long felt like our voting system is both antiquated and unfair. And for people to claim they represent you and your interest is totally bogus. I feel like the election system should be completely overhauled, and I really think that nobody who wants to be in office should be. About half of all eligible American voters cast a ballot in the recent midterm elections, according to the U.S. Elections Project, a nonpartisan research project at the University of Florida to track voting data and election laws. That's on par with the 2018 midterms, but it's down from the two-thirds of eligible Americans who made their voices heard in 2020. An unprecedented number of candidates who ran this cycle cast doubt on the integrity of our elections, and they repeated former President Donald Trump's falsehood that the election was stolen from him. But even beyond those election deniers, many Americans have doubts that our centuries-old voting system is working properly to represent the dramatically different society and democracy we live in today. So how should voters decide who represents us? What tweaks could we make to the current system? How can we elect candidates who represent the racial, cultural, and ideological diversity of the United States in 2022? We'll take on these questions and more as part of 1A's Remaking America series, where we explore Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Let's start the conversation in Wichita, Kansas, where 1A's June Leffler spent election week with voters who were deciding whether to change how they elect their city's school board. There was a push to bring more black representation to a board that serves a majority non-white student body. And it worked. 1A's June Leffler reports. On election night, Wichita Democrats gathered at a bar surrounded by train tracks in the historic Delano District. Democratic State Senator Oletha Faust-Gadeau rooted for her hopefuls. It is exciting here tonight at the Sky Lounge. And I'm looking now and I see that Governor Kelly is doing well. The watch party brought out local candidates in their campaigns, but scattered throughout were supporters of a citywide ballot measure that would overhaul how voters select their school board members, a change Faust Godot wants to see. I'm, I'm hoping that most people went all the way down the ballot. Wichita school board has seven members. Each one lives in a different neighborhood of the city. But instead of each rep being elected by their district only, they're elected by the whole city. And Faust Godot says that's not right. And so it just doesn't make sense that um, you're, you live in northeast Wichita, but you're voting for someone who lives out west. This is the only race in Wichita that operates this way. Levanta Williams is a retired teacher and former city councilwoman. She campaigned to change the school board from citywide voting to district voting. I need to have a say about the person who represents me on the school board. So I say yes means change, no means leave it the same. The same was not working. Voters agreed. The measure passed with 66% of the vote. The teachers union and the local NAACP pushed to break the status quo. They say black and minority representation was at the heart of this change. One-fifth of Wichita public school students are black. The majority are not white. 
but the school board hasn't had a black rep in five years. We don't have just uh, one population that's in school. It's, it's, it's diverse. And so we do need uh, a diverse board speaking up. That's Betty Arnold. She was the last black person to hold a Wichita school board seat. That was in 2017. She represented the diverse District 1 near Northeast Wichita. Arnold lost her citywide re-election by 84 votes, but she won a majority of votes from her district. If I had significant response in that district, but I still lost, then that takes away any kind of voting authority that that district had. Arnold says better representation leads to better school policies because school board members know what their community needs and will fight for them at the city level. It's not putting one over the other, but it's saying all are important. A.J. Bohannon lives and votes in District 1. He's an administrative director at the YMCA and a parent of 12 kids, seven who attend Wichita Public Schools. Do I think that it would be more impactful for a person of color to be in that seat? Most certainly. Do I think it's necessary for a person of color to be in that seat to be successful? No, I don't. You could be a white individual, but as long as you're deeply entrenched into that community and have an understanding of what they're going through and what would help them get through it, uh, then I think you're more than capable of doing the job. Bohannon says board members need to know what kids are going through on a daily basis to best vouch for them. Some Wichita public schools are dealing with overcrowding and gun violence. You have to find solutions that really give everybody a fair chance to to benefit from them. And it's hard to do that when you have so many different people that need so many different things. But is district voting really the best form of representation? Well, I I was disappointed that it passed. That's current school board member Hazel Stabler. She's one of three school board members that opposed the measure when it was first proposed to be on the ballot. She's Native American, the only person of color on the board. She says district voting could be awkward for parents that have several kids attending different schools. I think that it disenfranchises the parents and the community who have students who cross districts from grade school to junior high to high school. Kathy Bond is another school board member. She's fine with the results of the vote, but was skeptical of how the ballot measure came to be. My initial reaction from the mention of it at the board was... um, I, I thought it was political, and um, I could only speak out against it, and I did. The three opponents to this measure got their start on the board by running on a slate together that was funded by the local Republican Party, something that hadn't happened before in Wichita. The campaigned against masks and school closures during the pandemic. During their first board meeting, all three refused to wear masks, shutting down the meeting. Middle school teacher Shanna Bolton thought that was political especially coming from District 1 Representative Diane Albert. They brought that to her attention, like, you voted for no mask, but we are all wearing a mask. So you aren't really representing what we want, but you're representing your own personal views. Diane Albert did not respond to our request for comment. Bolton teaches at Pleasant Valley Middle School. Her kids are mostly immigrants, learning English as a second language. This journey that they take from their country to the United States is not an easy one. I mean, we're talking about 11-year-olds who are walking across countries for two and three days. Our students aren't looking for a handout. They're looking for help. Bolton knows those experiences are hard for Americans to comprehend. 
but she says adults on the school board have to try to understand what her middle schoolers are going through. Their parents understand, but these immigrants are mostly non-citizens. They can't vote. And if school boards are becoming one of the most politicized local races, how can their constituents, who aren't even of age to vote, truly have a say in who represents them? For 1A, I'm June Leffler in Wichita, Kansas. So how should we decide who represents us? What tweaks can we make to the system so that our politicians look and think more like all of us? Joining us now from Austin, Texas, is Peniel Joseph. He's a professor of public affairs and history at the University of Texas, Austin, where he directs the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So, Peniel, let's start with the basics. What does representative democracy mean in 2022? That's a great question. I think that uh, that answer, it's still unfolding. So um, depending on where you're at, uh, that means having the most say and most voice in the elected officials that represent you both at the local level, um, at the state level, uh, and at the national level. So what do you think of the change that Wichita voters made that we just heard about trying to increase non-white representation on the school board? Well, I think that's a positive change. And as we heard through the story, there's always going to be some complexity. There's going to be some hurt feelings. There's going to be people when you're pushing for equity who feel that that, um, it's unfair to them. And it's important for us to always remember equity and equality are two different things. And I think for voting, that's really important. Um, So equality is all of us having the same exact thing. Equity is us, all of us understanding that some people start at different places. So in order for them to achieve parity with other people in the neighborhood or other people who are being represented in the city council, um, they actually need a different um, policy solution. And that might make other people upset because they say, why am I not getting this? But it's really the pursuit of equity is is different um, from the pursuit of equality. That's a really interesting point that I want to sort of continue to tug at that thread, that equity is not the same as equality. One of our listeners, Jordan, tweeted us, representing the people means addressing our interests and concerns, but the only way to do that is to represent us demographically. We can't expect the silent generation to understand the plight of anyone born after 1970, and yet they're a significant portion of our electorate. Gerrymandering, the two-party system, they're all undermining our efforts to maintain a democracy. A reckoning is coming, and let's hope it ends with a revolutionized voting system. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Jeffrey Rosen. He's president of the Nonpartisan National Constitution Center, and he teaches law at George Washington University. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Great to be here. So, Jeff, how would you describe our current representative democracy and how it works at the federal and local levels? Our current democracy is very polarized. Uh, According to some measures, we're more polarized than at any time since before the Civil War. Uh, In 1960, there was a large overlap between Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Today, there's almost no overlap. And as a result, uh, we're fulfilling James Madison's nightmare that factions would be ruling based on passion rather than reason and that moderate deliberation and compromise would be impossible. 
Well, every civic student in America knows that the House of Representatives is based on population, but each state gets the same two senators. So that means the 39 million people in California have the same exact Senate representation as fewer than 600,000 people who live in Wyoming. Uh, Jeff, does that seem outdated in 2022, or is there still a legitimate reason for doing it that way? Well, of course, people disagree strongly about that question. Uh, the argument for it is that we're not a direct democracy. We're a republic uh, designed to filter popular passions and slow down deliberation, and that also that we're a federal republic, and it's important to have the entire country represented, not just on the basis of population, but also on the basis of geography. The, the strongest argument on the other side is that even if you agree that we're not a direct democracy, it doesn't make sense for there to be situations where majorities of citizens are unable to get a majority of representatives in Congress. And that's what extreme gerrymandering can sometimes do. It could allow uh, you know, one party to win a majority of the popular vote, but, but get a minority of the number of seats in Congress. And that's why uh, some uh, reformers are saying that we should reform our electoral system. And uh, it's a complicated question. There's there's lots to discuss. But, but interestingly, the biggest challenge to reform right now is a congressional law that says that you have to have single-member districts. And that law could be repealed, and we could experiment with other kinds of voting systems from proportional representation to ranked choice voting. But as long as that law stays on the books, we're not going to do that. Well, let's take a quick break. And after that, we'll dig in on ranked choice voting and all of the other things you've talked about. We're discussing our representative democracy with Jeffrey Rosen. He's president of the National Constitution Center. Also with us is Peniel Joseph from the University of Texas, Austin. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. We'll hear more from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back to discussing our representative democracy with Peniel Joseph and Jeffrey Rosen. Now, before we get back to ranked choice voting versus first past the post, I want to get a little deeper into the problems and the malaise over our system. So, Peniel, tell us a little bit more about why voters are so disappointed in our current forms of representation. Well, I think we saw um, with the real massive voter turnout by um, Generation Z, that there are, there's apathy, but there's also excitement about trying to change this system. I think we had a massive turnout of young people who voted for the Democratic Party really in spite of the Democratic Party. They voted for the Democratic Party in many ways because they didn't see uh, an, an alternative because the other party um, has been really focused on anti-democratic provisions, voter suppression, uh, racial division, January 6th, election denying, as you alluded to at the start of this um, this show. So in a lot of ways, I think what young people want is deep, small d democracy in a way that's actually nonpartisan, but in a way because of our ideological divides, voting rights has become a partisan issue in the United States of America. All right. Um, well, it's, it's not something that should be. Well, Peniel, you know, exactly right. Before we get into sort of divisions between Democrats and Republicans, I'd really like to sort of look at the larger question you brought up in the first segment, which was equity, um, as you know, what is equity when it comes to voting? And I and you've also mentioned demography. So I want to ask, what is stopping America from having representatives who think and look like all of us? 
Well, I think it's the lack of exp expansive opportunities. Um, so things like same-day voter registration, uh, automatic voter registration, um, the restoration of voting rights for those who have felony convictions, uh, the pre-registration of 16 and 17-year-olds. And some of this has been um, focused on, uh, you know, E.J. Dion, Miles Rappaport have talked about a case for universal voting, and others have too, the Carnegie Corporation, so many different, the Brennan Center for Social Justice in New York, um, uh, the work that, that Jeffrey Rosen is doing, National Constitution Center. So when you, when you think about this, there's many ways that we can expand voting opportunities, including vote by mail, which is very, very important. And we saw the expansion of that in the context of the pandemic, um, uh, early voting. Uh, and we've seen certain states really push for early voting and certain states really claw that back. Um, the accessibility of uh, voting precincts uh, and, and um, effective uh, election administration. So there's many, many different things that we can do. There was legislation, both the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act that was uh, in Congress uh, during the first year of the Biden administration that were unable to be passed because of two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who felt that these were going to be partisan voting bills because no Republicans were on board. But just because the fact the GOP wasn't on board didn't make those bills partisan. So if we can, if we can transform elected, election administration, uh, early voting and opportunities to register, that's going to be a game changer. We still need to think about gerrymandering and money in mm -hmm. politics, but what young people want is just the right to vote, <laughs> the right to vote. And, and part well, of election accessibility, I should say, is that disabled people all across the United States do not have free and fair election access because they have to, a, a lot of places don't have accessibility to wheelchairs. Right. They're unable to stand in line for seven, eight, nine, ten hours. So we, we, we need to do a lot more to have free and equitable elections for all people. Right. So you're talking a lot about voter participation and what can be done to increase voter turnout, make voting easier. Some of our listeners agree with you strongly. Alistair Reese tweeted at us, for a truly representative system, mandatory voting a la Australia would be a great step in the right direction. Another one of our listeners, Siga Spacho, tweeted automatic registration for all voters, mandatory voting like in other countries, voting day as a national holiday, ranked choice voting. This listener suggests, why can't citizens vote on our phones? We bank with them and do all sorts of other sensitive things. Why not voting too? Um, so, you know, Jeff, I, I want to ask you if there's anything you want to add about voter participation and how to make it easier. Uh, well, um, I would just focus on the fact that it really is a question of thinking about the structures of voting and the best way to ensure representation is to think about alternatives to um, single member districts and does, that does include things like ranked choice voting um, and uh, rethinking the first past the post system. The, the, the National Constitution Center did a fascinating project asking teams of scholars to think about the guardrails of democracy and to, to reimagine what voting could look like. And the progressive team, uh, and it's striking that it was the progressives who emphasized this, not the libertarians and conservatives, really did want to re-examine re uh, first past the post uh, voting. And they suggested... Um, 
ranked choice voting for the Senate and proportional representation for the House. Now, the, the details of this are complicated, not immediately easy to explain, and also hard to administer, which is why when proportional representation was used in, uh, or rather when ranked choice voting was used in New York in the mayoral election, people are sometimes anxious because they don't quite understand how it works. But um, when applied thoughtfully, these really could transform the way representation takes place, and it's worth talking about some of those alternatives. Well, Jeff, money is, of course, a vital part of this as well, and it goes to the whole question of fairness in elections. We got this message from Dan in Virginia. I think one of the issues with democracy right now is all about money. You have to have a lot of money to run for office, and that's keeping a lot of people from running from office. So, Jeff, how is money deciding who ends up on our ballots and what kind of campaign finance reforms are out there that could change things? I I do want to stress, because the National Constitution Center is nonpartisan, um, that not everyone agrees about whether there's a problem of money in politics or what the solution is. So it is true that the the progressive team did focus on uh, restricting money in politics and wanted to have more limitations on corporate spending and uh, also more transparency, which is a big part of the debate right now. By contrast, the conservatives and libertarians say that would violate the First Amendment as the Supreme Court held that it did in the Citizens United case and that that speech has to be free. And and also those teams disagree that that money really is a a problem in politics and, and note that if your concern is polarization, it's not always true that the most extreme candidates are the best funded. Often they're the ones who have the most access to social media or just can bring out the base most. So I'd, I'd say that on, on money and politics, that there really is disagreement both about w- whether there's a problem and also what the solution is. But the solutions that are permissible, that are on the table right now, don't involve serious restrictions of funding because as long as those Supreme Court decisions remain on the books, the Citizens United case says that you can't significantly restrict uh, money in politics or uh, corporate uh, funds, even if you want to. But transparency is on the table. And right now the court does allow for disclosure, although not all justices agree with that. Justice uh, Thomas would hold that anonymous speech is protected and that even disclosure requirements are unconstitutional. But but broadly, the, the court is willing to uphold a variety of disclosure requirements. And that's why that might be the most uh, immediate practical area of reform. Peniel, what are your thoughts on how money might be um, restricting who ends up on our ballots and who's representing us, or whether it's something that can be overcome in another way? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think Citizens United, uh, the Supreme Court decision by a conservative court, that that sort of has re-injected money in um, our national politics, uh, needs to be overturned. I don't think... um, one billionaire should have more right uh, in the political system than than just an ordinary citizen. Um, I would take I would have publicly financed um, campaigns. We take political action committees from the left and right out of it. Uh, the way in which it's set up right now, because we don't have public a, a really robust public finance uh, campaign system, it means that a lot of times to become a candidate, you rely on either wealthy donors, a network of wealthy donors, or some people self-fund their campaigns. And obviously, that's very inequitable. I think when you look at the campaigns of people like um, Maxwell Frost in, in Florida and, and young people, uh, they're, they're trying to push through that. And it's, it's very, very difficult. We've seen some exceptional 
people do that and, and, and win through small donors. But even somebody like Barack Obama in 2008, part of that campaign was fueled by people giving less than $5, but the bulk of that money came from Wall Street. And so we have a major problem when the only way you can run for either local city council, even a school board. We have school board races where people are spending $100,000, $400,000 to be on a school board. Um, it means that we, we are pushing away from ordinary citizens uh, being able to be active uh, civic participants and elected officials within our democracy. So money is a huge, huge problem. And this is a problem that impacts the left and the right. So Democrats and Republicans are part of this problem. And we need to ha have safeguards to our democracy by saying neither side can use political action committees. Uh, neither side can use billionaires. Obviously, this is asymmetrical warfare right now because most of the billionaires and that money is coming from one party, the Republican Party, more so than Democrats. But if you want to really have an equitable democracy, stop gerrymandering, stop the, 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 the use of money uh, to, to alter elections. It means everybody has to play by the same rules. And in, in certain ways, we, we need to go back to some of the rules that were uh, instituted after Watergate, where we had tight, uh, we probably had the tightest uh, campaign finance rules in American history post-1974, because for a time we were interested in good government after the Watergate uh, catastrophe. You know, I think beyond uh, the public's concern about money and its influence on politics and, you know, the way that uh, many people, I would say, on both sides of the aisle think that it, it has a negative influence or it can have a negative influence on representation. The other thing that I hear people talking all about so often is something that one of our listeners, Martha, tweeted about. She says, how do you want to make voting better? Eliminate the Electoral College so that, in fact, every vote will count the same. And while we're at it, create and enforce a national standard of nonpartisan redistricting. Peniel, you know, another huge topic that always comes up when we talk about equity and, and representation is the state right now of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, the Voting Rights Act in recent years has been stripped down um, through a lot of court rulings. So tell us where it stands today in terms of protecting voting rights. Well, I think the VRA has been um, really dismantled through the 2013 Shelby v. Holder decision, which really ended um, the Section 5 preclearance portion uh, of the Voting Rights Act that really forced um, states like Texas, which was put into the Voting Rights Act by 1975 through um, uh, an extension that was co-authored in the House by Barbara Jordan here of, of Texas, um, that really has allowed for voter ID laws and Places like Texas, North Carolina have really introduced voter suppression laws that uh, if the Section 5 of the VRA was still, uh, was still law, they would have been disallowed from doing so. So um, since 2021, um, and even before that, there's been the John R. Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, which is really seeking to restore um, basically Section 5 of the VRA. Um, and in a lot of ways, what we're seeing right now with the Voting Rights Act is that it, there's one America from 1965 to 2013, and we're living in the post-consensus uh, period, um, post-2013, post-Shelby v. Holder, 
which really puts an undue burden uh, on um, black and, and other uh, citizens who've been historically uh, marginalized or precluded from voting through onerous voter IDs. A place like Texas will take a, a gun license as a voter ID, but not a um, University of Texas um, student ID as a voter ID. So these things are um, arbitrary. They're exactly uh, relics from the Jim Crow period, uh, which lasted a century uh, in the aftermath of, of really Reconstruction. Um, and they continue to haunt our democracy um, today. So, Jeff, quick thoughts um, before we crack on on what could be done about this to restore, um, you know, the voting interest that civil rights leaders fought so hard for. Uh, just that it's right to flag the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and there's also a whole other series of cases involving Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, whether Congress and uh, is allowed to require the states to draw districts for the benefit of minorities, to create majority-minority districts. In this term, in the um, Merrill case, uh, Merrill and Milligan, the Supreme Court may essentially strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and say that to draw districts for the benefit of minorities is race consciousness that violates the Equal Protection Clause. That would be a huge blow to the core of the Voting Rights Act, which was amended in 1982 with, with super uh, bipartisan support. And it just shows that the, the Supreme Court is not a fan of race-conscious remedies for voting. Hmm. We got this message from one of our listeners, Laura. I'm a Gen X voter, and two of my best childhood friends ran for office this year in my home state of Alaska. Both ran as common-sense Democrats. Ranked choice voting in Alaska has allowed them to cultivate a strong, middle-of-the-road, moderate base of voters. I think this is a wonderful way to choose our elected officials, and I would like to see ranked choice voting expanded. So, Jeff, Maine has used ranked choice voting for a few years. Just very quickly, since many of our listeners won't have heard of it, just give us a very quick summary of the pros and cons of ranked choice voting. The pros are that it ensures that the candidate with majority support wins and doesn't allow minority-supported candidates to win. And basically, um, it results in more moderate candidates, as the listener suggested. The, the con is that it's tough to explain. I, I can't do it fast, and because voters don't immediately understand the way it works, some don't feel that it has the same sense of legitimacy, and that leads to some hesitation to having it adopted. Hmm. Uh, those are the arguments for and against. All right. We got this message from another listener, Tamara. What it should mean for politicians to represent the people is that at a minimum, the politicians answer their mail and actually ask for people's input. Over the last several years, I have gotten in contact with a large number of my representatives, senators, congressmen, etc., and not one has gotten back to me. Not one. Well, that's quite an indictment of the system and constituent affairs. Elizabeth just emailed us, real electoral forms can be made in many states, but the biggest problem is, of course, gerrymandering. The Supreme Court this term will wash its hands of that issue and will return all such decisions to the states. Peniel? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think... <laughs> Returning into the states is going to be problematic to the extent that uh, red states are going to b become further red <laughs> and blue states are going to become further blue. And that's exactly what uh, folks were trying to um, present, uh, to prevent. I think in certain ways, um, 
we saw this in the midterms where uh, New York State uh, tried to do uh, uh, undergo a redistricting process, predominantly Democratic New York State, and they put their their thumb on the scale in a way that caused the special master to create five, six um, red districts that really uh, turned the house. So um, Florida has has done a redistricting process under the, their current governor that has really gerrymandered Democrats out of existence. I think both of that's that's unfair whether it's being done by the left or the right. So the only way we can end gerrymandering is to really have um, national safeguards that take it out of politics and um, appoint independent boards uh, that are not um, political appointees, but that are civic actors from the left, right, and middle to um, really redraw the maps. And some of this redrawing of maps is already happening. Um, Places like UCLA and others are... Are, are doing um, maps that are, are gerrymander-free, um, and some of those actually have been adopted by local municipalities. But it shouldn't be a choice. It, it can't just be a choice because politicians are incentivized by power. So if they know, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, that they can gerrymander the other side out of existence, unfortunately, the ethical, moral power compass gets thrown out and people just pursue well, power. So we You're absolutely have to- right, Peniel. I mean, both political parties benefit from inequitable voting systems. And that's why we see both sides gerrymandering district maps. So Jeff, I want to ask you, you know, how much faith do you have in politicians to actually change the voting systems when their own parties are benefiting from them? Or do you think it's actually ordinary people, voters rather than the politicians who are more agreeable to the reforms we've discussed? Well, you and Peniel are absolutely right that gerrymandering is used by both parties when it serves their advantages. Unfortunately, it's hard to have faith in the political system to reform uh, gerrymandering when that benefits politicians. And that's why people initially turned to the Supreme Court to try to fix gerrymandering. But the Supreme Court in the Rucho and Common Cause case in, in 2019 said the Constitution doesn't regulate gerrymandering, seeming to leave it up to legislatures. And as Peniel said, independent commissions are really the only solution because that's the only nonpartisan body that could fix the problem. But the, the challenge now is the Supreme Court is being asked this term to hold not that legislatures and independent commissions may fix gerrymandering if they choose, but that they're not permitted to fix gerrymandering even if they want to. And the, the case is complicated, but the bottom line is important for listeners to understand. If the court in the independent state legislature case says that courts can't order uh, ends to gerrymandering or, or can't allow independent commissions to second-guess the choice of legislatures, then there won't even be a solution to gerrymandering, even if the people want it. So this hmm. is it's not an optimistic uh, less uh, bottom line here. Um, of course, it's not realistic to expect people to fix gerrymandering because because people can only vote for the people, the representatives who fix, set our political system. The political system won't fix it on their own. Courts won't fix it. And now courts are on the verge of saying that 
the people can't even fix it if they want to through referenda and through other sorts of reforms. So it's a very serious problem that may not have a clear, immediate solution. Lots of food for thought, um, and I hope we'll do many more shows on this. We were joined by Peniel Joseph from the University of Texas, Austin, and Jeffrey Rosen from the National Constitution Center and George Washington University. Thank you both so much. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations across the country. The series explores Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler, and this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. One